Well, if this is your first time joining us this morning, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors of the church, and we are in our second week of our new series called Shepherd King, which is a study through First and Second Samuel. So if you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it. Turn to First Samuel. If you don't have a Bible, no problem. There's probably one under your chair or the chair next to you. And in those Bibles, First Samuel chapter 15 is on page 237. And if you don't own a Bible, just go ahead and take that Bible home with you. We'd love for you to have it. But we always just want you following along so that you see where we're getting everything here from the Word of God. So we always say that the primary authority in our church lies ultimately with the Word of God and what it says, not me and my ideas. So follow along with us and we'll we'll start to dig into this. Now, if you are are just joining us or you haven't really ever ventured in to 1 Samuel, let me get you all caught up with where we are in the book. Okay, 1 Samuel comes on the heels of a really dark time for the nation of Israel, God's Old Testament covenant people. You see, God chose a man named Abraham. In Genesis chapters, kind of 12 to 17, God raises up this man named Abraham and he says, I'm actually going to make you into a great nation. And through this nation, not only will I bring a savior, but you are going to be a beacon, a light to all other nations. Through Abraham's seed, that is the people of Israel, God promised he was going to set everything right that went wrong in the garden. Now fast forward a little bit, and it seems that the story is going totally awry because the people are not a beacon nation. They're actually, just a few chapters later, enslaved in Egypt. But God in his grace uses Moses to lead them out of, it, out of Egypt, out of slavery. And he takes them into a wilderness and he makes them a promise. He says, one day I'm going to take you through this wilderness into a promised land. I'm going to make you into a nation. And then he says, and you'll ask me for a king. And I'll set a king over you of my choosing. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 8, After all this time has passed, finally, God's people ask God for a king, just like he promised they would. But then the strangest thing happens. God's furious with them. And you start to wonder, what in the world's going on? Didn't God promise that they were going to ask for a king and he was going to give them one and suddenly they ask for one and he's furious with them? His judgment, his just wrath is coming out. And you you wonder, what in the world is actually happening here? But as we dug deeper last week, we saw the king was not the issue. The issue was why they wanted a king. You remember what they said? They said, give us a king so that we can be like all the other nations and have a king who will go out and fight our battles. But you see, Israel wasn't supposed to be like every other nation. They were supposed to be distinct, different, a light to all the nations. And what made them so distinct was that they didn't need a king to fight their battles because Yahweh fought for them. And so what we saw is that their desire for a king was actually a desire to switch allegiance from a divine king to a human one. They did what all of us are tempted to do. They replaced, or let's put it this way, they looked horizontally for what God had already promised them vertically. They looked to a created thing to make them secure, to fight their battles, to give them an identity. 
And what we saw is that this is a universal temptation in all of us. And yet God in his grace doesn't judge them, he spares them. In fact, he even says, okay, I'll give you a king. And if you know First and Second Samuel well, you know that almost the entire rest of the two books focuses on one dude. Who? Come on, let's hear it, biblical scholars. David, that's right. Almost the entire book focuses on David, but most of you, you know he wasn't the first king, right? There's actually a dude that came before him named Saul. He was a very obvious choice for a king. He was good-looking, good warrior, very tall. This is where we should know we distrust him. You know, and, 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 and so from the beginning, David's not the first king. Saul is. And yet his kingdom is very short-lived. Saul doesn't last long in the grand scheme of things. And this morning, I want us to discover why. Before we get into David, and we're going to get into David next week, okay? Next week, David and Goliath, the whole bit, so you're going to want to be around for that. But today, I want us to think together about Saul. Why was his kingdom so short-lived? Why didn't he last too long? That's a question we're going to dig into a bit. And in order to do that, we're going to jump into 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Why so short-lived? And Samuel, okay, so remember, Samuel is the prophet judge who led Israel before Saul was anointed as king. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. So Samuel is recounting sort of his pedigree. So whatever's coming next is probably pretty important. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Okay, so this is not mere advice that's coming. It's not just a good idea. This is the words of the Lord. And now we have that classic refrain from the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them when they came out of Egypt. So just as a little bit of background, Amalek tried to essentially destroy God's people as they were coming out of the exodus from Egypt into the promised land. And God promised Amalek, judgment's coming to you for this. You've sinned horrendously, sought to actually wipe out the nation that would be a beacon to the world and the source of the Savior. This is a massive deal. And so there came this promise that judgment is coming, and yet God in his mercy held the judgment back for hundreds of years. But now the judgment is coming, and Samuel is commanding Saul to exact it. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. And here comes the judgment. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction. That's some sacrificial language right there. Devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both Man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. This is a long-promised judgment. 
But if you're anything like me, when you read a passage like that, part of you, can we be honest, kind of cringes inside? Like, all of them? The animals? The kids? And part of you just starts to cringe a bit. Now, I have to level with you. The judgment here is not the main point of the passage. So we really can't spend all of our time on it. I'd love to spend time going into what the Amalekites were like and how they actually sacrificed their own children to their gods, how they were a constant threat to the people of Israel who were meant to bring salvation to the world, and how this judgment actually flowed from God's holiness and his goodness, his love and his promises. I'd love to unpack all of that, but what I want to do before we move on to what happens next is just say two brief things about this judgment. The first one on the level of sort of God's justice. Though we cringe when we see this, we have to keep in mind that if you believe the scriptures, the reality is that God is sovereign over all of life. He's the author of all of it, the creator of everything that is seen and unseen. And that means that actually no one has ever died apart from God's decree. God has brought literally every soul into existence. And unlike your mother who may have said that she then had the right to take it out, he actually does. Life is his. He is the only one who is holy and good. A perfect Beautiful, King, Lord, Savior, God, merciful one. Life is his. And so when we read this judgment and cringe, we have to remember again who God is. That life is his. That he is sovereign. Now the second thing I want to say is sort of on the level of appropriateness for today. And what we have to always keep in mind is that the form of the kingdom, in the Bible, the form of the kingdom determines the form of the warfare. The form of the kingdom determines the form of the warfare. In the Old Testament, God reigned over one people group, one nation, that would be a beacon to all other nations. And he ruled in a theocratic sense that this physical kingdom was his in a unique and specific way. And therefore... He would use this nation as a means of judgment upon other wicked nations at times. And of course, he used other nations as judgment upon them when they were wicked. Let's not forget that. But the physical form of the warfare fit the kingdom. That's not the case any longer in the new covenant. Christ has come. And he has inaugurated a new kingdom. A spiritual kingdom made up of all of those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ for salvation. It's not as though warfare has ended. Let's certainly not make that mistake. There's actually a war going on in each of your hearts even right now. You know, each of us walked into this room with particular temptations. Some of you have even walked into this room and you are at like a crossroads in your walk with Jesus. Major decisions in front of you. Major temptations. Some of us, it's much more benign. Come in and you're kind of like, 
Am I discouraged? Am I joyous? You know, you're kind of teetering. If you're like me, you're like a deeply emotional person. So you woke up this morning an atheist and the battle has to start in order to believe what's true. Believe you me, the battle has not ended, but the kingdom is spiritual and therefore the battle is now spiritual. We don't fight with bombs and guns as God's covenant people in the New Testament. No, we fight with the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, and constantly through prayer, not making war against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this present darkness. Just please understand, the war is not over. The form of the warfare fits the form of the kingdom. All right, let's, let's keep moving. What has Saul been commanded to do? Go to battle against the Amalekites, devote them to destruction, sparing no one and nothing. Let's pick it up in verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, in case you're geographically obsessed. It's east of Egypt. Okay, so he defeated them. Good, great, good news. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag. You know when the Bible repeats the same thing in two consecutive sentences, the author is saying, please listen, this is not something you want to miss. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and listen to this, and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. Wait, hang on. Who was that stuff supposed to be devoted to? To destruction as a sacrifice to the Lord. And yet Saul holds back the best stuff for himself. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Samuel says, spare nothing, devote everything. He spares what he thinks will benefit him. A king and the best stuff. Verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. Now please understand, when it says that the Lord regrets, it doesn't mean he's like, gosh, I made a mistake. Really didn't see that coming. Now our God is sovereign. The Psalms say that he's in the heavens and he does all that pleases him. Nothing escapes. Nothing escapes his sovereign rule and reign. This is mysterious language, but it, it actually displays that our God somehow feels. He's sorrowful over Saul's disobedience. The Lord is sorrowful over our disobedience. That's, an, that's amazing fatherly-like love. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. What devastating things to be said about someone. He's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Why didn't Saul last long? 
Why was his kingdom so short-lived? Why is First and Second Samuel really all about David and not about him? Well, the answer to that question is really the big idea of this entire passage and our big idea for this morning, which is this. Why isn't Saul's kingdom still going? Why did the promise move to David? Why was it so, so short-lived? Because partial obedience is disobedience. Because partial obedience is disobedience. Partial, half-hearted devotion is no devotion at all. Now, anyone else terrified by that big idea? I certainly am. Am I going to be the only moron with his hand up admitting that he is partially obedient? Yeah, partial obedience and partial devotion. I mean, this passage, this guy's getting removed from kingship because of partial obedience, which is obviously no obedience at all. And we look at it and go, I'm indicted. What does this passage have to say to you and to me, this big idea that partial obedience is disobedience? I I think this passage has three things to say to you and me. And here's the first one. Why is Saul getting removed? Partial obedience is disobedience. What's this have to do with us? First and foremost, this passage tells us partial obedience is dangerous. Partial obedience to the holy, loving, creator God of the universe is dangerous. And I want you to hear this because, like, if you've been around City Light for any amount of time, you know we are like a gospel-centered church, if nothing else. Everything we want to be flowing out of the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. That it's all grace. It's not our works. That all of our doing flows out of what's done. And sometimes we can then begin to think that if there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then there's no place for being warned. Warnings and grace go together. A warning is grace for those who heed it. And if nothing else, this passage is a warning. Partial obedience is deadly dangerous. Let's see it. We'll see it now in the life of Saul. Verse 12. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. Okay, so we're about to have a conflict. The prophet's coming to talk to the king. And it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Another problem. And turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Now that's just there to tell you that Saul's not where Samuel originally thought he was. And Samuel came to Saul. Okay, now it's about to get good. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, okay, so the king's speaking. Now, you'd normally think this is a conflict and Samuel is the one who's going to call him to the carpet so he'd speak first. No, before Samuel can utter a word of rebuke, Saul, in his utter prideful arrogance, starts talking. And listen to what he says. Blessed be you, this is Saul to Samuel, to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. This is incredibly ironic if you've read up to this point. 
the prophets coming to confront him for partial obedience. And the first thing the king says to him is like, hey, blessed be your God. I've done everything he told me to do. You're like, what? It gets worse. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen? That I hear. If you're not too into agriculture, let me just tell you that uh, what he's basically saying is, well, then why am I hearing any animals? Okay. If you're like lowing of sheep, is that some kind of new age phrase? No, not at all. It just means they're making noise. I know many of you from Pennsylvania, you're like, dude, I got it. Not a problem. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people. Oh, now he's blame shifting. Great sign of leadership. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep. Not me, the people. And of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He was supposed to devote it to destruction as a sacrifice to the Lord. So now he obeys him and goes, not a problem. I've held it back for some religious ritual. So now he's using religion. Have you ever seen people twist the Bible to justify their own behavior? You ever done it yourself? Yeah, me too. And that's, what, that's what's going on here. He's saying, well, you know, sacrifices are good. I mean, I may have disobeyed. He doesn't even say that. He's like, you know, I, but it's, it's for sacrifice. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I just love that. Look, when you are bringing truth to a friend, a beloved in the Lord, and they start trying to use the Bible to justify utter foolishness, or if you're in that position where it's like, wow, Everyone seems to be saying what I'm doing is foolish, but you know what? I'm going to just cling on to it. Stop. That's what Saul is saying, or Samuel's saying to Saul. He's saying, stop. Just don't say another word. And Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, Just... I want you to notice the utter insanity in Saul right here. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Are you serious? He's just gone point by point and showed him the utter folly of what he's done. And he's so blind and so delusional that the only way he can respond is, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. That's true. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. Okay, well, there you go, dude, with your own words. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil. 
sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. First thing we need to see as it relates to us, as it comes to partial obedience being disobedience, is this. Partial obedience is deadly dangerous. And it's deadly dangerous because it hardens our hearts and makes us delusional. Partial obedience over a long period of time will harden your heart and make you delusional. I say delusional because it's certainly, I mean, it's possible that Saul is just bold-faced lying to Samuel. Like, I know I've been disobedient, but I'm just going to try and convince you that I haven't by lying. But I don't think that's what's going on here for a couple reasons. One, Samuel's a prophet, and Saul knows that he's come because the Lord has spoken to him. The other thing is, look at Saul's persistence. He just keeps on admitting that he's done wrong while saying that he's done right. I don't think Saul actually knows he's lying here. I think it's a whole lot more sinister than that. I think what this passage displays is how dangerous long-term, partial, almost obedience is. It will deaden your heart to real obedience. The danger of partial obedience is that it makes our hearts impregnable. You can no longer really be convicted. You can no longer really repent because you're just in a constant cycle of self-justification and sort of ignoring the word of the Lord. It's really dangerous. And I love you. It's such an honor, honestly, to be your pastor. And part of love is like, we have to talk about the warnings in the Bible. So here's, here's the question I want you to consider. What area of your life is only partially devoted to the Lord? What area of your life are you living in partial obedience? I mean, obviously, I can't read your mind. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's, it's money. And that's, that's one for me where it's like, okay, you know, I, I tithe and then some. So I'm good, and anything that comes my way about money, I, I, just, I can just stiff arm with while I'm already being generous. Well, hang on. That all belongs to the Lord. Your heart should always be open, even if you're already tithing. That's something I've been convicted of this week. Maybe it's like your sex life. We're almost obedient, which is disobedience. Maybe it's just like you know in your heart the person you're dating. Not a good idea. I'm not, just, I'm not thriving in my walk with Jesus because of this person. But, you know, maybe it's just the best I can do. Partial obedience. Maybe it's like your prayer life, your personal devotions, your ethics at work and the way you treat people. Maybe it's the way you are leading or responding to leadership in your family. Where is partial obedience creeping in? I just want to tell you because I love you that what you're doing is not harmless. What we are doing when we are partially obedient is not harmless. 
Persistence and partial obedience will make your heart hard. It will make you harder to, for the spirit to convict. And the great danger is you'll end up like Saul. So used to partial obedience that you can't tell the difference. Now, for some of you, when I say, hey, what area of your life is partial obedience creeping in? You can't actually think of anything. You can't actually, nothing concrete's actually coming to mind. I'm not, and I'm not saying like, oh my gosh, now you're in real trouble. That's not really what I'm saying. What I'm actually saying, what I would like to say to you, if nothing's really immediately coming to mind, is that the second thing this passage shows us about partial obedience is that its roots are really deep. The roots of partial obedience is the second thing I want us to see, is that the, the roots of partial obedience are really deep. And so I want us this morning to take a second and just see from this passage where partial obedience comes from, even if we can't pinpoint an exact spot where it's showing itself in our lives. Verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And the presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And he says to Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, and now what Saul is going to say tells us just how deep the roots of partial obedience go. It's going to tell us where partial obedience really comes from. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, and here it is, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Partial obedience comes out of fear. You want to know, if you can't pinpoint an exact you know, manifestation of partial obedience, I'll just tell you where it's probably going to end up coming from so that you can attack it at its roots. It's going to come from what you're afraid of. Just think about it, say, with a, an easy example like money, since we mentioned money a couple seconds ago. And by we, I mean, mean I. It's not like I have a triune nature or something like that. Uh, money is one of those things where one of the reasons we're not generous is what? If I give this away, if I obey with my money, if I truly believe it all belongs to the Lord, what might happen at the end of the month? I'll, I could, maybe I'll never be provided for. I'll never be able to retire. Who would I be if I can't keep up with other people? These are all, this is all fear. And where fear begins to fester, partial obedience will just start to shoot up. Well, then, you know, maybe I don't really need to be generous because, you know, God knows I'm in a situation that's totally unique and no one's ever faced it before in the history of the universe. Partial obedience just starts to flow so naturally when we're afraid. Now, it may not be money. It could be a million different places. But the roots go down deep. So maybe the question is not, where is partial obedience creeping into your life? Maybe the question is, what area of your life is fear beginning to reign? Where is fear reigning? 
Is it raining in your marriage? Your relationship with your children? Your job? With the way you speak to maybe your neighbors? Where fear begins to reign, partial obedience is certain to follow. It was so strong, this fear of man was so strong for uh, Saul that he couldn't actually repent. I know it makes it look like right here that he was repentant. No, no, no. Skip down to verse 31. Or verse 30, excuse me. And we really see what his repentance is about. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet, anytime you move on from I have sinned that quickly, you know you're probably not actually repentant. I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Dude is not sorry for sinning against the Lord. He's just terrified of the results. He's sorry because he got caught. He's sorry because it might mean the end of his kingdom. He's sorry because he might not be provided for and secure and what will come of his family. He doesn't care about the Lord. That's why he's willing to throw the people under the bus. The roots of partial obedience go down really deep. But there's a third thing about partial obedience, that if we raise our eyes from this passage here and look across the scope of the whole Bible, there's something else we can see about partial obedience is that there is hope. There's great hope in the Bible for the partially obedient. Here's the first piece of hope. There's actually three of them. The first piece of hope for the partially obedient is the completely obedient one. The first piece of hope for the partially obedient is the completely obedient one. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous, that's Christ, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The great hope for the partial obedient The partially obedient is that God in his grace does not wait for you to be completely devoted to him, for him to to devote his son to destruction for you. He devoted his son to destruction, to be given up in your place for your sin, to forgive you and to remove the wrath that you and I deserve because of our partial obedience. That's the good, gracious, glorious news of the gospel. So the partially obedient have reason to rejoice because there's a perfectly obedient one. And if your hope is in him, you pass from judgment into life. Have you put your hope in the completely obedient one? I am certainly not trying to encourage those of you living in partial obedience to persist in it. No, what I'm telling you is there's still hope because grace continues to come. But don't use grace as an excuse to just walk in slavery. Grace is meant to make you free. So there's hope for the partially obedient and the completely obedient one. But secondly, there's hope in repentance. See, the fact that you can hope in a completely obedient one means you're now free to repent. You don't have to pretend any longer. You don't have to put up a false image and lie to yourself and others about your sin. You don't have to hide. You don't have to run. You don't have to make excuses. You don't have to. The completely obedient one has taken the judgment you deserve. If you've put your faith in him, you are free and you're free to repent. Repentance means turning from something to another thing. 
Listen for a second to 1 John 1, 8 and 9. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The only thing that can keep you from hope is a refusal to acknowledge your sin. It's the only hopeless thing. The only thing that God will not forgive is a heart that will not seek forgiveness. But he goes on, he is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because Christ has been obedient on your behalf and you've put your hope in him, you are free. You don't have to establish your own identity. You don't have to earn God's favor. You're free, and you know what you're free to do? Not walk in slavery. If you're here this morning and you are living in some secret sin or some sin that's just uh, it's a place of just partial obedience and you've not wanted to admit to anyone and you are terrified, what will actually happen if I If I actually repent, if I actually turn from this and turn to the Lord, let me just encourage you, whatever it is and whatever consequence you might have to live with, if you turn from your sin to obedience, it's worth it. Repentance is worth it. You remember a few weeks ago, Jameson preached on Psalm 32 and David said, my bones wasted away when I held my sin in. He confessed his sin. If we're right that that was in response to his sin with Bathsheba, you know he, he still faced some devastating consequences. He lost a child over it. But the repentance was worth it. You've been called to freedom. Don't go back to the yoke of slavery. Whatever it is, don't leave today without going to the back and having someone from the prayer team pray with you. Don't leave today without talking to your city group leader, grabbing one of the pastors. You don't have to persist in this. The partially obedient have hope in the obedient one so they can now experience the hope of repentance. Don't stay where you are. Finally, this is, I, I thought about skipping this, but you know what? Uh, because I'm like over my time, which tends to happen. But, you know, I actually think this is really important. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it anyway. And, Maybe like next week, you can just skip out on Mark Giacobbe's sermon at the last five minutes. Um, you know, make it fair. I don't see him here this morning, so it's fine. Um, there's hope in community. I think this is really important. There's hope in community. I want to just read you really slowly uh, two verses from the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. It starts with a warning, and then it starts with hope or then it ends with hope. I didn't put it on the screen, which is my fault, so just listen. Take care, brothers. He's writing to Christians. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now that is a warning. Saying to the partially obedient, those thinking of kind of slightly or completely turning their back on obedience to Jesus, he's saying, listen, take care. Even if you have been following Jesus for some time, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you a wicked and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I do believe in perseverance of the saints, by the way. I just also believe in the Bible. So we've got we to take this warning at face value. But now the hope. 
but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me read that again. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you think the general life of the Christian community, you know, like the Sunday gathering and your city group is just a nice additive to the Christian life, if you think having intimate relationships with people where you actually invite them and say, I want you to look at my life and I want you to tell me when I'm not walking in a way that makes sense in light of Jesus' grace, if, you're, if you think that that is secondary and a nice additive, let me just encourage you from this verse, you have one of two options, either get that or get a hard heart. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Be exhorted or be hardened. There is hope in community. These don't have to be your best friends. Doesn't mean that you like everything about the person and the people in your city group that you're inviting to have this place in your life. It means you say, we're a body. I'm an arm. I don't particularly love legs, but you know what? Let's do life together. And I want you to speak the truth and love to me. And I'm going to speak the truth and love to you. And we're going to encourage and exhort one another. My friends, this is not a nice additive. This is God's means of hope to keep our hearts soft. So if this is something you've been pursuing as sort of a nice additive, uh, take it or leave it, please understand this is the hope of your heart. God's people looking at each other face to face and say, what's competing for worship in your heart? Where's partial obedience coming out of fear? I don't care if you've known these people for a couple weeks, just ask them, say, hey, I need you to be these people in my life. In a moment, we're going to respond in worship, but we're also going to take communion, so let's prepare our hearts for that. Communion is something we take every week together. The bread symbolizes Jesus' body that was broken, the completely obedient one, broken on our behalf. His blood shed so that ours wouldn't have to be. So in the next three songs, if your hope is in Jesus, tear off a piece of that bread, dip it in the cup, take and eat it. But remember this as you do. The hope of the obedient one, the hope of repentance, and the hope of community all come together when we take communion. We take it together as a body, symbolizing one people together. So even if you're not best friends, we are in this thing together. Remember that it is a symbol of the complete obedient one. And so you have hope. And so before you come to the table, I want to encourage you to repent. To confess to the Lord, here's where the partial obedience is. It may cost me a ton, but I want to turn from this. And then I would encourage you, if you want to be prayed for before coming to take communion, do that. In this, the response to these next three songs, this is an opportunity for you to really wrestle with God and walk in the hope of the truly obedient one on your behalf.